The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slick Culture Gap Fest Chalkboard Ninja Edition. It's Wednesday, January 25th, 2017. What's that? Happy birthday. Oh, thank you so much. Very sweet of you. On today's show... (laughs) (laughs) Happy birthday tomorrow, Steve. I'm sorry we didn't (laughs) sense it psychically. Exactly. Um, Hidden Figures tells the once unknown story about three African-American women whose considerable mathematical talents helped NASA put America ahead of the Soviets at a crucial juncture in the space race. And then the Oscar nominations are out just this morning. They are fresh. They are like hot little biscuits fresh out of the oven. I can't wait to um, put them under Dana Stevens' nose, have her sniff them and tell us what she thinks. (laughs) Biscuit sniffing to come. (laughs) And finally, is it okay to punch a Nazi? We're joined by Slate's own chairman, Jacob Weisberg, to discuss. Uh, And joining me today is Slate's editor, Julia Turner. Julia, how are you, sweetheart? Hi, happy birthday to you. I am not well, and I'm going to do a couple segments and leave you guys on your own for the other. I didn't anticipate. I thought I was on the upswing of an ailment, but I am on the downswing, so I will gravelly talk about a couple of things and leave you guys to your own devices and try not to infect Dana. Hello. Um, That's how I am. Hello. Heroic of you to come in um, at all, and great that you're here. Um, And of course, Dana Stevens, Slate's film critic. Hey, Dana. Hey, Steve. All right, before we dig in, Dana, do we have any business we need to get to first? Our only business, Steve, is to talk about the content of today's Slate Plus segment. So if you are a member of Slate Plus, Slate's membership program, you can hear our extra segment about the march. I myself took the bus down to D.C. and went to the Women's March on Washington. Steve went to a local march up where he is in Hudson, New York. Is that right, Steve? Was that where it was? I went to the march in Hudson and my wife and two daughters went to the one in D.C. Great. So we'll have a lot to talk about. I want to hear about their experiences. We'll talk about mine and maybe we can talk a little more broadly about the huge worldwide turnout for these marches and and what it means for the Trump administration. So again, if you are a member of Slate Plus, that will be an extra fourth segment you'll hear at the end of this show. And if you're not a member but you want to join, go to slate.com slash culture plus to join and support Slate and the journalism that we do. Superb. All right, moving on. Hidden Figures tells the story of the African-American women mathematicians who played a formerly obscured role in the space program. It focuses in particular on Catherine Goebbels, a math prodigy who grew up in segregated America to help put John Glenn into orbit, thus vaulting the United States into the lead in the race to the moon with the Soviets. Uh, it's been nominated, I should say, for Best Picture, Best Adapted Screenplay, and Octavia Spencer has gotten a, a Best Supporting Actress uh, Oscar nom. All of this came out just this morning. Uh, the movie stars Taraji P. Henson as Catherine, uh, Kevin Costner as her irascible but finally adequately enlightened boss, um, as well as Octavia Spencer, who got the Oscar nom, and Janelle Monet as uh, her friends and colleagues. Let's listen to a clip. Mr. Harrison, I would like to attend today's briefing. Why is that? Well, sir, the data changes so fast. The capsule changes, the weight and the landing zones are all changing every day. I do my work, you attend these briefings, I have to start over. Why is it she can't attend? Because she doesn't have clearance, Al. I cannot do my work effectively if I do not have all of the data and all of the information as soon as it's available. I need to be in that room hearing what you hear. Pentagon briefings are not for civilians. It requires the highest clearance. I feel like I'm the best person to present my calculations. You're not going to let this go, are you? No, I am not. And, and she is a woman. There is no protocol for a woman okay, attending Okay, I get meetings. that part, Paul. But within these walls, who, uh, who makes the rules? You, sir. You are the boss. You just have to act like one, sir. 
All right. Well, we are joined by Verilyn Williams, who is a Slate uh, podcast producer and producer of the Represent podcast in particular. Verilyn, welcome to the show. Hi. Excited to be here. Uh, it's so excellent to have you. Um, this movie would seem to have everything. It has a genuinely inspo- inspiring storyline uh, uh, for both white and non-white audiences. It has the space race, super advanced math. Uh, it also arrived with very little hype. Why do you think this movie has caught on to the extent that it has? I mean, in the in the wake of Oscars so white last last year, I think people are just excited about a feel good movie that has women of color at the center, but it isn't about I don't know them being black women. I guess it is in the sense that you know they were being overlooked, but it, it like it was gender. It was also the space race, which I feel like a lot of Americans was going through. It told a story about this period of segregation in the South that wasn't like that was the main driving plot point. You know, I think at least for me, when I saw it, I was like, oh my God, these are these women that are overlooked. You always kind of assume that that's happening or that's Mm -hmm. happened in history. Like, you know, my roommate is studying to be an anthropologist and she was reading, she came out of her room and she said, oh, I just read about the two men that that found the double helix. And she's just like, how many black women do you think supported him, right? So there's this thing that you always have a sense that black women in particular are overlooked and always like like in the background of things, but this movie kind of puts that in the forefront. There have been all these GoFundMes for young people to like really go and see this film. And I think people are just excited to see some Something that they've kind of assumed to be represented. Are are you going to have someone from the movie on represent? Are you looking to interview? You know, we hidden figures. Mm-hmm, we thought a lot about because I think there's been a lot of conversations around it. And Aisha Harris, who's the host of uh, Represent, isn't a huge biopic person. And I've been making the point to her that actually this isn't really a biopic movie. I feel like you know you do get that montage in the beginning with Taraji and kind of seeing her you know, be be seen as this child prodigy. But that is really when the exceptionalist of her as an individual ends. And it's then about these this community of women of color that are killing it. And I always say, like, there's this idea of, like, black excellence. And I'm I'm always like, yeah, black excellence, but it's also, like, black regular, right? Right. <laughs> and in some ways, yeah. Well, I mean, in some ways, the, the I mean, I, I'm not going to say pedestrian because these are exceptional women, but it's a workplace drama, yeah. right? It's not, it's not, all about there are a few scenes okay of Taraji P. Henson knocking people on their ass with her incredible chalkboard ninja math mm-hmm. right but there's also just a lot of sort of workplace back and forth right yeah. there's the the ongoing subplot which is really one of the more important plots about the fact that the colored women's restroom is so far away yeah. from from the headquarters where they work that she has to spend large portions of her day running back and forth to the bathroom oh my god how many of us have felt something where you're like should I mention this should I not I don't want to complain so let me just do what I have to do so even though I mean it's that was a time where segregation was the driving force be- between that that challenge but I think that challenge is something that even I felt like oh like you know, should I ask for this or should I just figure it out? Right. Well, and it's right there in the title. It's sort of mm. that's that's one of the invisibility narratives that's mm. told throughout the movie, right? Mm-hmm. Um, Dana, why don't we talk a little bit about whether we actually liked it as a movie? 
I, mean, I really, I really liked it. But it's 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 a kind of liking I will say that is, is sort of an, an enjoying. I mean, I, I I've sort of saw a lot of the beats coming in this movie mm-hmm. because it's a crowd pleaser. It's an uplifting crowd pleaser, inter- intergenerational kind of go to the movies sort of movie, which is why it's surprising and I think pleasing that it got this much recognition in the Oscars. In fact, the opening up of the Best Picture category to ten a few years ago it was exactly to make space for movies mm-hmm. like this, movies that are crowd pleasing but were not necessarily made with Oscar ambitions in mind. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's really, really nice, too, to see Taraji P. Henson playing a character who's sort of a fumbling nerd, right? Because we always, always see her as a, as a character who's completely tough on top of things. She's cookie and empire. She's mm-hmm. usually see her playing this this very brassy kind of balls to the wall woman, right? And although her character is very strong in Hidden Figures, she's also sort of, you know, you see her grow. You mm-hmm. see her starting mm-hmm. out as, as a tentative, less confident person in her in her work and sort of grow throughout the course of the movie. Mm-hmm. Julia, what what'd you make of it? Uh, I loved it. It made me cry. It's totally inspirational. It's it's not a movie that's not about uh, black women's struggle for equality or integration. Like that's very much at the center of the plot. But it's it the movie works very well and in a novel way because it shows you how the ways in which they are shut out just keep them from doing things that are important and exciting that everybody wants them to do, mm-hmm. as opposed to like. You know, there's a, one of the plot points is that Janelle Monae's character is a computer, literally like a human who does math problems because they right, don't have Right, they call a, her a computer, which takes a moment to get used that's to. That's the task, right? They're all computers to start with. Um, and she uh, wants to become an engineer and she needs to fight to get access to a um, class in an all-white school in order to have the prerequisites to apply to become an engineer through NASA. And she goes to through a court case or whatever and tries to get rights to this class. Hampton High School is a white school, Mrs. Jackson. Yes, Your Honor, I'm aware of that. Virginia, still a segregated state. Your Honor, you of all people should understand the importance of being first. How's that, Mrs. Jackson? Well, you were the first in your family to serve in the armed forces, the first to attend university. What's the point? I plan on being an engineer at NASA, but I can't do that without taking them classes at that all-white high school. And I can't change the color of my skin. So I have no choice but to be the first, which I can't do without you, sir. You can imagine just that story being its own whole movie, the struggle Mm -hmm. to integrate this one science class or whatever. And in this movie, it's like, no, like, get that out of the way because I want to be an engineer. You know, like, it's nice that there's a story beyond the the narrower story of the integration. I will say the movie is... uh, conservative in a lot of ways like mm-hmm. nothing bad happens and these women all get what they want <laughs> like well, they... that's what i mean about it being a family drama right mm-hmm. i mean it's not it's not an integration drama that's going to leave you walking out thinking about how some of these problems continue into the present day necessarily i think that the ending has a, an uplift that might not be completely earned no mm-hmm. it's all extremely tidy and even the little threads of challenge and conflict in the movie so janelle monet there's also a suggestion that her character's husband um doesn't you know believe that integration through the courts is possible and thinks that a more you know radical civil rights approach must be taken and also feels a little bit like why is she working so hard and makes some grumbles about you know the kids not eating vegetables because she's not home enough or whatever you know suggest hinting at some of the tensions in within the fight for civil rights and also tensions within american families as women of all colors join the workforce 
And then with like no real actual development at the end of the movie, he's like, it's okay, honey. <laughs> I'm so glad you got into the course and I love you and you're great. I'm married to Janelle Monet. It's all good. Yeah. <laughs> Life is Here's good, some no mechanical problems. pencils. Don't worry about it. You know, so like yeah. it's not a uh, – it is a very pleasing movie that is like maybe a little more pleasing and tidy than the subject probably actually was or warrants. But – um, I'm so happy this movie exists. Yeah, and like it just made me like there's this even with Mahershala, who's Mahershala Ali is in this film as Tarazi P. Henson's love interest, and I was like their love interaction, like the way that he kind of chased her, and to me it just made me feel really warm inside. And it's so rare that you see a a woman, a black woman in particular, just be chased by a black man, and it's like Nina, neither one of them have like this like overcoming character flaw you know that they have to overcome like to me it just really felt like warm and fuzzy and it kind of speaks to what you're saying like it's a very feel-good movie and I guess like that's a representation of a different kind right so like just getting to exist on screen without having something bad happen at the end that probably wasn't as great as it was in reality right but like something to aspire to yeah (laughs) Steve what about you what did you think of the movie I I mean I completely loved this movie um and um you know could have basically started weeping 2 minutes in and you know, <laughs> the, stayed, the trailer made me cry. <laughs> right, I could have stayed lacrimose until the closing credits um but I but I kept my wits about me man. And um <laughs> but I did love it. I thought it was you know it was it's it's not subtly delivered but that's fine. Um I thought everyone is quite good in it. I thought Kevin Costner, you know, it, it, it's it's it gave a very good performance. There were moments when working with very little, he did a lot without seeming to do a lot. Um, I, th- I think it's interesting how small that sweet spot is where you can, you know, in this day and age to make a movie that's about white people participating in the struggle for equality that isn't like, it doesn't hit that sick making note that the help did. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was trying to think through why in a way, I mean, obviously because this is a historically based, uh, drama in which, as you guys all pointed out in one way or another, in which people of color in the movie had an immense talent and gift that, that, you know, they were contributing to, um, a, a large social project that all of us look back on collectively mm-hmm. as heroic, um, sort of changed the conditions of the provisional social contract between whites and blacks in a historical drama. So it wasn't white people acting as moral saviors um, or moral midwives, you know, for the struggle of black people. It wasn't sort of appropriating black people's struggle for equality as a way of making it sentimentally appealing to white audiences, um, which I thought was um, great at the same time it invited white audiences to congratulate themselves in the sentimental ways that Mm. we sometimes do when we see struggles for equality. So I thought the fact that it could authentically get at that sweet spot was what made that movie completely unusual. well, I, I think it's think also that, much, much more black centric than The Help was, right? I mean, oh my God, right? I mean, the, by, the Help was no, a segregated I, movie, basically. That and, also uh, had a bathroom element to it. Now that I think about it, right? Then it wasn't there that oh, scene yeah. in The Help about a different the bathroom. bathroom in the house yeah. that she had to use. That's true. Yeah. Yeah, but yeah, I feel like the, the the place of the white savior was so much bigger. The Emma Stone character mm-hmm. in in The Help and and the the overall 
motive for the film's existence seemed to be uplifting white audiences and making them feel better. This movie feels completely different than that. Right. And, so and Kirsten it, so Dunst, in fact, plays a pretty unsympathetic and racist mm-hmm. supervisor. Also, of she the plays women. a dowdy old hag. Oh my God, how old are we? That <laughs> Kirsten Dunst Kirsten is like Dunst a dowdy middle aged yeah. woman. Oh my God, that made me feel a million years old. But the point I want to make is that this that this movie somehow found a space through which you could drive a Mack truck that I didn't think, that I actually thought was quite a tiny space, mm-hmm. which is which is neither self-flagellating, offering, offering up two white audiences neither self-flagellation nor self-congratulation in a racial reconciliation narrative, which is why I think it's both authentic and a huge hit and quite moving. I do think you stack, I do think this story had to be told and I'm grateful it did. I do think you stack the deck enormously when you make the, um, uh, heroes, and in this case, the heroines of the movie, enormously mentally talented, right? Like so perspicuously and totally <laughs> mentally talented that it would only the most grotesque forms of institutional and personal racism would keep them back. Mm-hmm. Whereas racism is actually so much more pervasive. It, it, you know, it, it, you could argue that many of the traditional ways of measuring mental talents are inherently racist. You could argue that you know, um, the IQ controversy is a result of centuries of uh, abuse and, uh, you know, social abuse and neglect, like all of the truly complicated, like almost quasi-metaphysical issues about American racism somehow do get avoided when you have super high IQ African-American, you know, protagonists. But just to register that complaint as the one asterisk, I do think it's a a wonderful movie. I cannot wait to take my kids. Well, yeah, it's this funny thing where I think you can see the movie as... Um, you know, it's it's conservative in some ways, right? Like it's very tidy. It doesn't. It's it's very crowd pleasing. It it sets itself in this sphere of um, you know, like unimpeachable mental achievement. Like he did go into orbit and he did come back. Like mm-hmm. it worked, right? Mm-hmm. The math, the math worked. I mean, I think one reason I'm really glad this movie got an Oscar nomination is that I think it will spur an ongoing conversation about it as a movie that should be taken seriously. And I think on the one hand, it's easy to uh, dismiss it or at least compartmentalize it as like, you know, tidy, crowd-pleasing, family, like rockets blasting off schlock, like well-made, wonderful novel in all the ways we've discussed schlock, but schlock. Um, and I think you could raise the asterisk that Steve raised that, like, when you make a movie about uh, integration and civil rights that focuses on such singular talents, you leave out all of the people for whom civil rights was important. Like, mm-hmm. integration didn't only matter if you uh, look like Janelle Monet and have the brain of a NASA engineer and, you know, are able to smartly negotiate with your crusty white judge. Um but I do think it would be a mistake to overlook the radicalism of this film, that actually the radicalism of making um, this kind of movie about this group of people engineered for the audience um, in a way that that does not repeat the mistakes of previous mm-hmm. movies that assume like, well, you need like this is the Kevin Costner movie about yeah. how he learned yeah. about how smart black women yeah. were or the Jim Parsons movie who plays like the grudging other scientists where it's like really about him understanding mm-hmm. that he must awaken to the talents of these black women. Like right. It's, in fact, in a way, not so much in Costner's case, but in, in the case of 
every other white character, either they never really come yes. around that we yeah. see or they yeah. come around off screen. There's a moment at the very end where Taraji's character is sitting working at her desk and Jim Parsons comes by and puts a cup of coffee on her desk and leaves it. And you get the sense that, you know, now they're real colleagues where he will bring her something. But that's not that's right. not a big break. There's like a there's the, the like who the fuck cares what these white people thought of this right. struggle yeah. and this advancement. Like but, they get their moments, but it the decentralization of that is actually um much more unusual than it has been and it makes the film modern in a yeah. really impressive way. As as a white male watching the movie, I do have to say, like they gave me my one moment where Costner picks Ugh. up the sledgehammer. That's my I mean, least favorite moment. I don't think we should be spoil- Is it too spoilery it, it, to talk it, about the crowbar moment? Oh, uh, maybe, maybe, maybe. I, well, I think it's okay. I think everyone no? has been talking about okay. it. Okay, all right, I'm sorry. Do I you mean think that actually happened? Like even a little bit? Well, I, but also I think you can't start asking that about this movie, uh, you know, because it's, it's, you know, it is d- definitely a based on true events kind mm-hmm. of film. That compresses so, yeah, the experience. Yeah, it's yeah. like probably, probably Catherine Goebbels also didn't stand up and, you know, wow, roomfuls of men with math on the chalkboard. True, you know, true. In that yeah, sort of dramatic way. But I way. just for the record hated that moment because I feel like <laughs> the crowbar moment. The crowbar moment, especially since Kevin Costner does not have a great history of like being in movies with people of color, a.k.a. dancing, dances with wolves from his, the beginning of his um, his presentation to us. Um, I just felt like it was grandstanding and it kind of did that, like, I don't know, For it, it felt for me the least, it pulled me out of this happy world that I was in. Yeah, he would have just mm-hmm. ordered a janitor to do that. Yeah. Like, yeah. Why? Like it. It. Um. Like probably oh, a janitor. Of color, actually, and like it's a Hollywood movie. Now suddenly you want verisimilitude when a white guy finally gets but, to do something. But one thing I like, will say that movie for me emphasized is just like at the end of the day, they or Kevin Costner's character and anyone in power at that time, the most important thing is was getting to space, right? Or, like, there'll be other instances where, like, you know, you see all these, particularly, like, Atlanta and, and um, Issa Rae's movie. Like, I mean, TV show. Like, at the end of the day, money money talks, right? And mm. so I feel like, every like, in both in the case of um, the space race and also now when you think about the, the new developments of people of color being at the helm of these TV shows and these movies, it's at $84 million at this point. And one is opening box office weekend. This movie is doing well and is making money so why wouldn't you make more movies like this and I think Mm -hmm. like both like I was saying both in those two cases you see that people are willing to integrate all of a sudden (laughs) segregation doesn't seem so important all of a you know all of a sudden representation if representation like the push for representation happens when people realize that money talks Mm -hmm. and these things make money and well, and that's why things like Oscar nominations, while it's easy to scoff at how superficial they are, yeah. matter a lot because Absolutely. that's where the money pours in for the next project. If I can throw one more little Valentine at this movie that is connected but not identical to the race question, it's that it's, it passes the Bechdel test with such flying colors. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just mm-hmm. a movie about three women who are really smart, who work together, yeah. who are friends, who work through their problems together. You know, I could watch a whole series about these three chicks hanging out together. And it is also great as a film, a, a female film goer to see they all have normal bodies, like they're all gorgeous. Mm-hmm. And they have, in Janelle's Monet's case, a slamming body, but they're curvy, <laughs> yeah. built women. And that's, yeah. that was a really nice feature of the movie for me, too. And talk about shine theory. Like, they all, like, built each other up. And were, it's just a great depiction also of, like, what, like, what a, 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 like when women don't see each other as competition, 
concept as well. Right. Like they genuinely liked each other. <laughs> right. And so those scenes of them just hanging out just yeah. have a genuine sense of spontaneity and yeah. playfulness. They seem to enjoy each other's company. Yeah. Yeah, agreed. All right. Well, um, the movie's Hidden Figures. We all loved it. It's making coin. You should go see it if you haven't. Tell us what you thought about it at facebook.com slash culturefest. Our guest was Verilyn Williams. Verilyn, thank you so much for coming on the show. This thank was really you. a total pleasure. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, the Oscar nominations came out this morning, roughly at 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. I have scarcely any introduction, but um, why do I need one? Dana, go. What do you think? I mean, clearly. <laughs> wait, wait, wait. You guys, there's like headline news about the Oscar nominations for listeners of this podcast. Guess who got nominated for Best Original Score? Nick Patel. You're yes. kidding. For Moonlight, correct? Yeah, for The composer Moonlight. of our theme. The composer of our theme song and star of two long episodes about how to make a theme song, um, which we will uh, post links to on our show page. But, I oh, mean, well, now I have someone to root for in that category. I mean, as listeners of the show know, Nick is an old friend of mine, so I'm thrilled for him personally. But I thought the score of that movie was extraordinary and beautiful, and I'm so excited for him. So, personal Cavell. Uh, <laughs> okay, personal Cavell out of the way. I do think we need to add his name now to our credits, though. Our theme song was composed um, by Oscar-nominated yes. composer Nicholas Bertel. <laughs> uh, yes, and I think I think also just kind of by association, we're now the Oscar-nominated podcast, the hmm. Slate Culture Gap Fest. Hmm. Hmm. No, not a stretch at all. <laughs> <laughs> no. Um, all right. Well, the headline, um, the second headline, secondary to Nick Bertel, um, Oscar nom, which has tongues wagging all across the, the continental U.S. is. La La Land, um, Dana, uh, this surprised even me. I mean, H- Hollywood's ability to reach out and touch itself seems to have gone to some <laughs> new lengths here with 14 um, nominations to a movie that I think we liked, but maybe groaning under the weight of its um, of its current reputation in some ways. What do you think of uh, of the nominations and what do you think of La La Land leading them by such an enormous margin? Yeah, I mean, it's been expected ever since its, its debut, you know, early last year that La La Land would do extremely well at the Oscars for exactly the reason you mentioned. I mean, besides, independently of the question of its quality as a movie, as you know, I really loved it. But because of its Hollywoodness and because of its sunniness and crowd-pleasing nature, it just it seemed like a a shoo-in to be well-recognized when Oscar nominations rolled around. But still, 14 nominations is a lot of nominations. And so with that many nominations, it ties these three movies, Titanic, Ben-Hur and All About Eve are the only other movies to have gotten 14 Oscar nominations. Um, so even if it doesn't win all of those, you know, it's already sort of swept just the, just the noms themselves. And, you know, I know that when La La Land did so well at the Golden Globes, Julia, you kind of turned against it and became a La La Land backlasher for the simple reason of its over-recognition, right? Yeah. Yeah. I'm like, screw those dancing primary colored <laughs> wackadoos. <laughs> I don't know. It, it's t- It's tough like having a rooting interest in the oscars it is also um ephemeral and pointless but you know i think the other big thread in the nominations this year is that there were a lot more nominations for people of color and for films about stories centering on people of color than there have been in a long time possibly ever and um there's just a lot more interesting stories about the world being told among the nominees this year and this like the most glorious thing you can do is aspire to do what we do and then tell stories about what we do and how glorious it is. Like the self-referential um, Ouroborousness of La La Land is just kind of, uh, I feel revulsion toward it at this point, especially given just the political moment. Like, no, no, I'm sorry. Like, I hope they lose them all. <laughs> Despite having, like, if you haven't seen it, you should still go see La La Land. It's a totally enjoyable night at the movies, but it is just, like, not 
But I just don't think, given the political moment, that La La Land is what I am hoping the Academy most recognizes this year. I feel the same way, except that I except that I don't think I hold it personally against the movie. I don't feel revulsion toward La La Land, but I have a feeling that during the course of this long Oscar campaign that's about to begin with all kinds of, you know, angling to get various movies that, to spin the narratives of different movies and how they're going to become the little movie that could, that La La Land will become a movie that a lot of people backlash against. And I would be really sad to see it sweep and win a whole bunch of these awards. But I think people that are already pitting it against Moonlight in this sort of moral uh, epic battle that, you know, if, if if Moonlight doesn't sweep every award it's nominated for, then everyone in the Academy is racist. Also seems a little heavy handed. Well, and I will oh, say we should mention, of I, course, that the, if it's a much more diverse voting pool this year because of all the Oscars so white changes that were made at the beginning of the year. And I will say that, like, shortly after some recent bull session where I was griping about the Golden Globes and um, how much I thought people should honor Moonlight instead, Barry Jenkins, the director of Moonlight, you know, came out with a tweet or in some venue and was like, I love La La Land. It's great. Like, stop putting pitting our movies against each other. Like, let a thousand flowers bloom. So, yeah. All right. I got yeah, really to take a cue that. from Barry Jenkins. Well, and let me point out that in these nominations, lest you feel that Moonlight and Barry Jenkins are being stiffed because they didn't get as many nominations as the, you know, the big splashy musical. Barry Jenkins is the first African-American to be nominated for Best Picture, Best Director and Best Screenplay mm-hmm. all mm-hmm. at once. So, you know, he's he's sitting pretty yeah. right now. Um, Any time this list comes out, it's um, filled with sins of omission, right? Uh, Was this one in any Yeah, I have a special. I have my pet sin of omission, which, again, I'm going to try to not get too upset about. But Annette Bening got no recognition whatsoever for 20th Century Women, which... Whatever you think of that movie, I thought the movie was more um, pleasant and agreeable than than brilliant. But I thought Annette Bening in it was absolutely brilliant. And she's now been nominated four times and, and never won. Because of the kind of actress she is and the kind of roles that she chooses, I was disappointed not to see that nominated just because I would like there to be more careers like Annette Bening's and like Meryl Streep's, you know, women that 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 don't drop out for a while and then figure out how to reinvent themselves as a non-ingenue, but just who, who keep choosing interesting roles as they age throughout their career and keep excelling at them. I loved Annette Bening in that. And, uh, and I thought she was an absolute shoe in at least for a nomination. So that was a bit of a snub in my eyes. And the only other person left off that I would mention is Amy Adams for Arrival, which got eight nominations, also surprising for a movie that was you know, more of a popular release than kind of a, a late year art film. But nothing for Amy Adams, who, if anything, is is the, the the glue that holds that entire movie together. So sort of sad to see Denis Villeneuve, the, the director, get some recognition, but not the star of the show. You know, I do feel like between Annette Bening and also uh, Martin Scorsese's Silence, which uh, got fewer nominations than I think people expected. Way fewer. I, it feels to me a little bit like the Oscar timing game has changed and these people who try to skate in and have their movies come out extremely late in the year um, are not doing as well. I don't know if that's scientifically true, but it feels like the last couple of years there was Selma as well last year where it came out very late and then got great notices. And it just feels like if your window is late December, you kind of miss the boat on Oscar season in a way that didn't seem true several years ago. That may be true. Selma was also criticized. The marketing campaign of, of Selma for the Oscars was criticized for sort of not getting it out there early enough, not pushing it hard enough and, and letting it fade into the background. And I don't know whether that was true of Silence or whether Scorsese cares about it. I mean, when you see Silence, I hope we do it as a topic at some point in the show because it's really interesting. But it feels like a, 
a last movie in a way. And I say that, you know, with, with many hopes that Martin Scorsese goes on to make many more movies. But it has this this feeling of self-completeness and, and sort of zen quietude or something. It, it feels like it comes from a different universe that doesn't care about Oscars. So in a way, even though I really liked it, I feel like Scorsese has been sufficiently honored. massively recognized and yeah I can I can live with that. I did find it odd that Andrew Garfield's acting nomination was for Hacksaw Ridge, the Mel Gibson movie and not for Silence, but I haven't seen Hacksaw Ridge yet so we can't really speak. It to seems that. like we might have to see Hacksaw Ridge now guys. I mean and Mel Gibson mm. also got a best director nomination which is quite a um comeback for him. I mean he's essentially been reviled uh since the various scandals and revelations of him saying sexist and anti-Semitic things. Um, but he keeps making movies. And this one, this recent one, has gotten a decent amount of recognition here. So we have to go watch yeah. people get flayed sadistically at some point? Oh, dear. Is that what happens? Uh, I would, that happens in every Mel Gibson movie. Oh, God. I, I would go see that. I, I, want, I really want to see Hell, Hell or High Water. Hell or High Water is wonderful, and we should see it, and we should do a topic on it. And the nice surprise about Hell or High Water getting so many nominations, it was Jeff Bridges' Supporting Actor nomination, it was Best Original Screenplay, Best Picture, and a Film Editing Award as well, is that it came out really early in the year and was not at all positioned as an Oscar-seeking movie. It was an early-in-the-year release that did well at the box office, but and, and critics generally thought it was sort of better than they expected it to be as a Western thriller type movie. And to see it pop up again at the end of the year and really assert itself was a was was a nice surprise. I think we should talk about it. Um, superb. All right. Well, last week's word was cathonic. This week's word was uroborously. Um, Julia, I think... <laughs> Ouroboros-ness, wasn't it? Uh, yeah. Ouroborosity. Ouroborosity, yeah. Can you, for those of us who didn't know can you tell us what that what that refers to an ouroboros is the snake eating its own tail ah all right um did you not know that steve or are you i i I kind of forgot it i think um it's a really old mythic image right an image of of eternity and repetition yeah um all right well anyway um speaking of eternity and repetition we should put an end to our segment (laughs) (laughs) there we go all right, so sins of omission, commission, uh, many blessings. Uh, come to facebook.com slash culturefest. Tell us what you thought about the year in movies vis-a-vis these nominations, and we will all um, agree to uh, see as many as possible before the awards. And yeah, we'll, we'll post a complete list of the most nominated movies we haven't yet discussed, and you guys should come to the Facebook page and tell us which ones you most want us to do as segments. It's our... It's our makeup class portion of the year where we go back and discuss the movies we didn't get to. So we'll uh, we'll post a list and you guys should let us know what you want to hear us yak about. Excellent. Moving on. All right. Well, we were going to talk about the PBS Masterpiece Theater Brit import of Victoria. We found it stuffy, sumptuous, and completely gratuitous. So we audibled at the line of scrimmage, which we've done in the past, and instead decided to talk about Richard Spencer getting virally punched in the head by um, some kind of anti-fascist um, anarchist uh, protester. We're joined by the chairman of the Slate group, uh, Jacob Weisberg, and of course, host of the marvelous Trumpcast podcast. Jacob, welcome to the show. Thanks, Steve. Jacob, am I right in seeing this as split between um, Twitter, which has taken an enormous delight in seeing Richard Spencer, who's the uh, supposedly the coiner of the term alt-right and effectively a, a neo, the face of young neo-Nazism in America, that Twitter delights in this meme of, of um, you know, uh, someone just laying into him on camera, whereas the ethicists uh, have come out pretty much um, uniformly against it. 
Yeah, I was just tapping into this a bit. I mean, I guess partly because memes are a vehicle for for the alt right, the the um, Spencer's quasi neo Nazis. You know, it's sort of um, he's sort of. Uh, foist on his own petard in a way. I mean, that's sort of the mood on on Twitter. I mean, I wished he had slipped on a banana peel. It would be possible <laughs> to fully enjoy that. Um, but you know, it's t- to me, the the kind of celebration of of political violence, even against the worst people, is just absolutely the wrong uh, point to be making at this time when we're more worried th- than ever about. Political liberty, free expression, and freedom of the press. We have we have a president who genuinely does not believe in it, and it seems to me more than ever we have to be insisting on the 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 right of speech, regardless of how reprehensible the message is. Right, and one worry, of course, is that in legitimating violence, and especially like you know social media friendly spectacular displays of violence, you're only offering a permission slip to the very people who most want to use it. Um, but let me, let me, and I say this as mostly as a devil's advocate, but let me throw another way of looking at it at you, that, there, that, that there's a procedural way of looking at it in a substantive way. I'm not saying I believe this, but the, but the, but the procedural liberal way of looking at it is I will defend to, to you know, death his right to say it as much as I abhor it, sort of the Oliver Wendell Holmes notion of free speech. So regardless of the content of his speech, uh, his right to say it is is really kind of regarded as sacrosanct and absolute in this country, a point of view I almost completely ag- agree with. But there's another sort of more substantive or ends-oriented way of looking at it, which is if this is 1933, and of course we can't know it, so it raises also a sort of basic question of of the limits of our own knowledge about our historical moment. But if if we are if we are watching the budding of something truly evil, um, aren't we somewhat justified in using any means to um, combat it? Yeah. I again, mean, I say I say this as a devil's advocate. I don't I don't think I believe this point of view. But well, Steve, you know Jefferson believed in the right to revolution. I mean, certainly there's an argument that if the government itself is becomes repressive and and doesn't uh, respect. Uh, norms of 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 liberal society of a free society that there's a right to to violently overthrow the government but this is not the government i mean this is this is a this is a right wing crank you know it seems to me mm-hmm. that among other things violence elevates them to mattering in a way they shouldn't matter i mean i think the correct response to richard spencer is to take seriously the views and 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 check it at every point with a with a with a response but also mm-hmm. not to take it too seriously you know jacob i want to emphasize again i agree with you completely but i'm going to play devil's advocate yeah. with one further question aren't we in a unique moment where yes richard spencer does not represent the government but someone who could legitimately be called be called alt-right is in the white house one door down from the president of the united states he has his ear he seems to be writing some of the words uh that he speaks is that an asterisk, asterisk on this at all? Right, that Steve Bannon's in the White House, you know, and, and that he's a, he's a friend of Richard Spencer, I mean, politically and, and, and possibly personally. Um, I don't think it provides any justification uh, for violence. In fact, I think part of the problem is that the use of violence will justify violent or extreme measures in response. Uh, and it's it's the Nazi method. It's not the it's not the liberal method. I mean, I, I don't know if you've had a chance to listen to this new Slate Academy on fascism, but in the first episode, 
they talk about this question of what what defines fascism. And it's a complicated question, partly because fascist movements in different countries uh, had very different sets of ideas an- animating them and different sets of beliefs. But one of the things they seem to have have in common is a belief in the uh, in the in the power of in the in the liberating power of violence in the spiritual and transformative effect of violence applied to politics, and it's actually a place where. You know, I don't know. You know this philosophy better than I do, Steve. But like George Sorrell, but I think you can trace the sort of anarchist left wing version of this yeah. and the Mussolini right wing version of this back to common philosophical sources. So mm-hmm. you know, the idea of sort of fighting neo Nazism with uh, Nazi techniques or Nazi beliefs seems to me you can't get any more wrong headed than that. Dana, let me let me throw to you then the secondary question, which people are asking, which is it's not it's not okay to do it. Um, it probably isn't okay to promulgate um, it approvingly, but maybe it's okay to click on it and delight in it. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, in a way, we we need to have someone on this podcast who who will uphold that point of view and defend it because it's not really me. It's also not just really my sense of humor, to be honest with you. Like even Warner Brothers cartoons are a little too bonk them on the head for me. I just don't get joy, even remixed with a funny song and seeing someone get sucker punched in the head. And that is not in any way, you know, some sort of expression of empathy or sympathy for Richard Spencer or his views. But to me, the really, really key question in this is the virality. I mean, if it, if it wasn't the age of Twitter, if we didn't just have an election that was won by, you know, Nazi peppy frog memes, then I might think of this as a one-off thing that happened at a demonstration. And yeah, he got his and he had it coming to him. Great. But the, the moment that it becomes this remixable viral morsel that can be spread around the internet, then it really becomes almost like a question of, to go back to philosophy, to to Kant's categorical imperative, right? What if everyone did this? What if this became the sure. rule for our behavior? Obviously, no one wants to live in that society, right? Where anybody who disagrees with you can just come punch you in the face, and then pretty soon people are laughing at the remix online. I mean, we, if we look at this as an outlying situation of a thing that happened on the fringes of Donald Trump's inauguration that's sort of funny and weird that we can remix, then I guess there's a way that, you know, it just it just goes away in the churn of the the daily news cycle. But if you really think about the implications of that meme spreading, I think that it's it's something quite insidious that we should, yeah. on the left, I mean, in the resistance or whatever you're calling it, people who, who don't want the Nazis in our government should resist this form of entertainment. Yeah, I agree. And let me let me just add that one tiny caveat, which is the to the categorical categorical imperative, I would add the Daffy Duck Daffy Duck hypothetical, which is had he been hit in the head and his head took for an instant the shape of a swastika and then returned to its normal shape, <laughs> then you're allowed to then you're allowed to laugh. Yeah. But when you see the reaction on Twitter, you you do realize that um a large number of people do enjoy righteous violence. That is violence against someone who, in some sense, deserves it. And, you know, go to the movies this weekend and see what's playing at the multiplex and you will see um, the, the spectacle of enjoyable, righteous violence. There are people right. Who, As many yeah. have pointed out, Indiana Jones punched a Nazi. Captain America punched a Nazi. I mean, Nazi, Nazi punching is a great American entertainment tradition. Right. And, you know, either you have some visceral reaction that you enjoy that or you don't. 
Um, I weirdly don't. Like I don't. I just it's it's hard for me to to get in that mindset and enjoy sort of derive pleasure from from watching that. It's not that I'm morally superior. It just doesn't for whatever reason mm-hmm. that that emotional trigger. I don't have. I have the opposite reaction. Whenever I see it, I think this is the very this is getting people in a very unhealthy state of mind. Even just the visual of these these people with black bandanas, you know, I mean, they guys they were anarchists, right? They were, but that the vision of a bunch of people with black bandanas rushing in and punching someone, like just for a moment, take it out of context. That that's that that's not going to be the basis for our revolution. I hope. No, absolutely, and also think strategically for a second. I mean, think about the difference between the behavior of the anarchists on inauguration day and the behavior of uh, the uh, marchers in the women's march on the following day. How easy it is for those two things to be conflated on something like Fox News, substituted for one another. Um, you know, Frank Luntz complaining like a little snowflake because someone threw some glitter on him. You know, there's this attempt to taint what was. Uh, the largest mass protest in history that <laughs> he was went off assaulted with... by glitter. I didn't hear about that one. <laughs> yeah, he got glitter bombed in the in the in the hall of the Marriott and wanted to discredit the entire march. So just offering viral video of righteous violence. I think you're right, Jake. I just want to add one thing to what you said, which I thought was 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 quite perceptive um, about about certain people have that response to it. It it it's not that I have a neutral response to it, it's that it disgusts me for how much it would have thrilled me as recently as 15 years ago. You know, that that young men in America, especially I think, grow up with a notion of redemptive, you know, redemption through violence. Um, and um, and I was very vulnerable to that as a, as a young man and now as an old one, I, I it, it makes me sick to my stomach to, to, to think that I once would have uh, vicariously gloried in it, but Steve. But what happened 15 years ago? I'd I'm interested, actually. If you, if your emotional response Did he get changed, punched? was it? Well, I don't. I'm trying to remember how old your children are. are but uh, but was, oh, it, was it having absolutely? Yeah, yeah, yeah. My daughter's about to turn 14, so yeah. it's, you know, having kids. Um, you know, I just think me- metabolically, young men. I mean, you stay young for way too. I mean, I speak only for myself, but I, th- I don't think it's. I'm I'm the you know, total outlier here, but. You know, you you absorb an enormous number of images in American culture as a very young man, and they stick with you at some level. I mean, I certainly didn't have as immature and visceral reaction to to spectacular screen violence at the age of thirty five as I had at fifteen. But my fifteen year old self was still in there in a way that having a kid just you know, if it doesn't exit, then it's never going to, and it certainly did with me. I can't even watch NFL football anymore, but. So Nazi punching, we're against it. (laughs) (laughs) We're all good Kantians. I love it um, on this show. Uh, uh, Spectacular. This is, I mean, if there were ever an occasion for people to flood our Facebook page with um, vitriolic opposition to um, what we've said. Actually, minus the vitriol, I do request that. I want someone to make a reasoned defense, a reasoned defense of the virality of the Richard Spencer meme. Hmm. I'll listen. Okay, so amidst the the vituperation, if someone could make a reasoned case... um, uh, come to facebook.com slash culturefest. Tell us what you think about uh, Richard Spencer getting leveled um, on YouTube um, over and over and over again, often to born in the USA, which I have to admit to make me laugh. But um, <laughs> anyway, we were joined by the wonderful Jacob Weisberg, chair of the Slate Group and host of the wonderful Trumpcast. Uh, Jacob, I have to say my writing schedule is going to have to get rearranged. I just want to write something so that I can go back on Trumpcast. With that one goal in mind, I'm going to write another Trump piece. Steve, anytime. We'd, you, we'd, I'd love to have you back on the show. It's a terrific show. Um, Jacob, can I just ask before you go, will you stick around and endorse? Of course. Wonderful. All right. Well, now is the moment in our podcast where we endorse. Jacob, thank you so much for sticking around. What do you, what do you have? 
Uh, Steve, this is maybe old hat to Dana in particular, but I had a chance to interview the Pakistani filmmaker Sharmeen Obaid Shinoy, who made the film A Girl in a River that won an Academy Award um, in, I guess, the short documentary category in, in 2016. Um, but this is an amazing film. It is about honor killing in Pakistan. And she set out to make this film uh, with the goal of doing something about this horrific practice where uh, young women who make a uh, marital arrangement or, you know, are, are sexually dishonored in some way are often murdered by the, by the men and their family. And uh, this story that the film takes up is about a girl who was, because she married someone who was from a different class, legally married in her village, her father and her brother decided to kill her. And they shot her in the head, put her in a bag, and threw her in the river. But somehow they missed, didn't kill her. She crawled out of the river. And the question the film then takes up is what's going to happen to her father and her brother? Is she going to go ahead with the prosecution in the face of all this pressure in the village to forgive the members of her family, which is what usually happens in cases like this in these Pakistani villages, which is why this, these crimes of honor killing are never prosecuted. Um, I won't tell you what happens. It's, it's an amazing story, but it did actually result in a change in the law in, in Pakistan. Uh, and as a result, you can no longer sort of sue for forgiveness. You have to, these prosecutions will go ahead even if the, even if the victim doesn't doesn't want to effectively uh, prosecute. Um, but part of what's great about this documentary is the way the story is told. You know, I see so many of these Netflix-style documentaries with the, the heavy voiceover and that we were sort of guided through and told what to think the whole way. Anyway, it's a stunning film. I could not recommend it more. And she is an amazing filmmaker, Charmaine Obeyed Shinoy. And the name of the film is? A Girl in the River. Oh, I don't know that, and I'm going to look for it. That's incredible. I love I, know, I, I love too. the story that of a film a, that changes something. Yeah. Entirely new hat to me. Jacob, that's wonderful. Thank you. Julia, what do you got? Uh, I am having one of the most absorbing and delightful reading experiences I've had in a long time, and I actually need to thank uh, our our guest, Jacob Weisberg, for being one of a trio of people who recommended this book to me, a trio of discerning but very differently um, oriented readers who all said this book was one of their favorites. The book is Barbarian Days by William Finnegan, um, the New Yorker writer. Uh, it is a memoir about surfing, neither a genre nor a subject about which I am particularly um, ecstatically excited generally, but he is just the most lucid, compelling writer, and he makes uh, a subject I should hate, which is the tale of like, a young man's travel around the world to learn about himself uh, and and nature. It's like not that at all. I don't know. He makes he makes you feel like you understand surfing. He makes you feel like you understand the world. It's just a gorgeous, gorgeous book. And it's like a page turner, like you're reading Agatha Christie or something. And yet he's just describing like, then I went to Indonesia. There was a cool wave. Then we went to Australia. <laughs> yeah. There was a cool wave. Then I went to South Africa. There was a cool wave. But like, it's But he not... doesn't sound like Keanu Reeves just writing a book? No, it's so extraordinary. It's so, so extraordinary. Uh, I I really highly commend everyone to pick it up. I am not the first to honor it. Uh, in addition to Jacob Weisberg, who won the Pulitzer, as I, maybe I already mentioned. But uh Anyway, read the book, Barbarian Days by William Finnegan. It's so fucking good. Uh, Dana. 
What yes. do you have? My endorsement this week, Steve, is uh, is dedicated to an unnamed listener who wrote on, I believe it was on Twitter. It might have been an email. It might have been on Facebook. I, I just know that somewhere in the confusion of the past week in which I went down to D.C. to this March, somebody asked me this interesting question that I meant to answer, and it then got buried. It got buried in the, the social media world, and I have no idea who this person is. I believe it was a male name, the person that asked me. And the question that he asked me was to recommend some early movie critics. He wanted to know about the history of movie criticism, and was there anyone from early in the history of the medium that he should read. And I wanted to recommend a really great book to him that's called American Movie Critics from the Silence Until Now. That's an anthology that's basically a, a history of American film criticism, which is edited by the wonderful essayist Philip Lopate, who writes sometimes on film, sometimes on his own life experiences, on literature. Anything Philip Lopate writes on is worth reading. And he's made a really great uh, choice in culling these these essays together. And the, the critic who popped to mind that I wanted to recommend to this to this guy to start with in the anthology is Robert Sherwood, who was one of the earliest serious movie critics, somebody who wasn't just in the pocket of the industry and promoting new product, but was really thinking about this new art form as it was emerging. But there's lots of other critics that we no longer talk about that are, that are very interesting windows into the history of film. So again, American Movie Critics from the Silence Until Now, an anthology edited by Philip Lopate. And I'm sorry, guy who asked the question, that uh, this may not get to you, but it's my only way to throw it out in the airwaves you know dana um this uh for the first time in the history of this program i just ordered something on amazon while you were speaking (laughs) i don't know whether to be flattered or to be hurt that you've never done it before well i mean in the course of the program never i've I've, um followed through on many of your endorsements but for the first time i thought i i I was it lopate did i have you at lopate there were so many trigger words in there it would be hard to pick one out but um you know lopate is is one movie critics, movies critics, history of cinema, all the way back to the silence. I mean, boom, one click, baby. There we are. <laughs> all right. It. All right. This week's endorsement um, is going to strike some people as slightly odd. Please don't let it um, strike you that way. Find it, pursue it, read it. Um, it's an essay that appeared in the London Review of Books several months ago by a writer named Inigo Thomas, who I think it's fair to say is not overly prolific, but you wouldn't want him to be. He he considers what he's going to write uh, for a very long time. And um, when he does produce something, it tends to be um, both beautifully dense and deeply thought, and yet also cut like a gem. I mean, he's a wonderful writer, writer Inigo. He's been around for quite a while. Anyway, he wrote an essay about the, um, uh, I think it's fair to say, iconic Turner painting, Rain, Steam, and Speed, which um, now hangs in, as he says, room 34 at the National Gallery on Trafalgar Square in London. Um, The essay gets into uh, the painting dates from 1844, and um, in Thomas's telling, the painting really is an attempt to come to grips with this new force in the world, which is obviously, uh, and most literally, the railroad. and uh, and the steam engine, and this enormous potential for social change um, and technological advancement that's been unleashed with it uh, with its advent. But more, it's sort of it's sort of about uh, this venerable and ancient art form coming to grips with how it's going to depict um, a new world that may make it obsolete. I mean, it's his essay gets into sort of every possible aspect of what this object. Um, and its sheer Blakeian force meant to Turner and how Turner depicted it. It's one of the most extraordinary literary essays I've ever read about a work of art. And I guess I'll leave it there. People should seek it out. But um, if you're a fan of Turner's work, fan of the London Review of Books or Inigo Thomas or of me or anything, any one of these things, I really urge you to read it. Um, 
it's it's really a sort of an aspirationally great piece of writing. Thank you, Dana. Thanks, Steve. And of course, thanks to Jacob Weisberg. And thanks, of course, to our Oscar-nominated composer, Nick Bertel. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page, slate.com slash culturefest. And you can email us at culturefest at slate.com or drop us a note at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash culturefest. Our producer is Zach Dinerstein. Our intern is Daniel Schrader. The executive producer of Slate Podcast is Steve Lichtai, and Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of the Panoply Network. Culture Gap Fest is part of the Panoply Network. You can check out an entire roster of very excellent and uh, very diverse shows at iTunes.com slash Panoply. Our Twitter feed is at Slate Cult Fest. For Julia Turner and Dana Stevens, I'm Steve Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll see you next week. <laughs>